All right, and I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 this morning. Romans chapter 2, there are handouts available in the bulletin or on the back table, uh, and today that handout would be helpful. Um, I will also display on PowerPoint a diagram in the second half of the sermon, I think it's helpful for Romans 2, 6 through 11, but if you have one of those handouts, you can, you can capture that or you can draw it on your hand, whichever you prefer um, this morning. So Romans chapter 2. I want to thank you for your prayers this week. My voice is feeling a little bit stronger, at least so far. Um, I am hyped up or or hyped down on cold meds this morning. So I want to thank you for your prayers and for uh, those. Thank you also, maybe even more so, for your singing this morning. I love singing with you and hearing you sing. Sometimes when I I can't sing as much because of my voice, I have to listen more, and that's a good thing. Uh, It's glorious to hear you sing Psalm 150. Uh, let all creation, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. And uh, what a joyous song and consideration, the end of the Psalter there. Uh, but of course, we know in Romans chapters 1 through 3, that instead of all creation, blessing and praising in the name of God, all creation is condemned uh, under the wrath of God because of our sinfulness. And so Uh, We are in that section of Romans where we are looking at the bad news, looking at the dark, dark uh, scene across our world because of human sinfulness. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20, uh, Paul will reveal God's wrath against all forms of human sin and ungodliness. He goes from Gentile to Jew to all humanity uh, in these sections. And so it was last week that we started at the end of Romans chapter 1, and we looked at verses 18 through 32, where uh, Paul reveals what is always true of ungodly Gentile people who suppress God's truth. Lost humanity is constantly preventing, restraining, or hindering something. And uh, last week we saw that what they don't want, what they're constantly restraining or hindering, is the truth about God. They do not want the truth about God to affect them uh, or others in any way, so they deliberately stifle God and His truth so that they can pursue living for themselves. And that is actually what God decides to give to them in Romans chapter 1 in His wrath. As a form of judgment, uh, He allows them to pursue living for themselves. And this leads to Unnatural passions, lust, and sins, like homosexuality, described in Romans chapter 1. And like all the other vices in verses 29 through 31. So just as a form of review, look down in your Bible at verses 29 through 31 at the catalog of sins that Paul gives there. He says they were filled with all manner of, and here are 21 sins, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This catalog of sin, I don't know, is meant to be totally comprehensive, but it does give 21 descriptions of 
the sinfulness of men and women. It gets so bad in Romans chapter 1 that God gives Gentile humanity over to debased minds. Minds that can no longer properly function in their evaluation of morality and truth. As they become unable to think clearly or correctly on moral issues. And sadly, we see this moral confusion all around us in our world today. Now, in the next section, Romans chapter 2 and into chapter 3, Paul will uncover the ungodliness of the Jewish people who are under God's wrath. In Romans 2, 1 through 3, 8, Paul will uh, directly go after the ungodliness of Jewish people. Uh, He does so in two ways. He starts by deflating the sources of Jewish presumption and pride. And then he will correct some possible misunderstandings that his words might produce among the Jews or some of the objections they might raise. And so in a sense, in Romans 2, what Paul is doing is he's pricking the balloon of Jewish pride. Have you ever seen a child before with a new balloon? Perhaps it's a young child in this imagined scenario with the first time they've ever gotten a balloon. And this child is just so, uh, you know, enraptured with this balloon. They take it with them everywhere, tie it on their wrist, you know, that that sort of stuff. And, you know, it, it is cute, but eventually that balloon gets rather annoying. Right? So if you're a parent and you're trying to do anything with the child a little bit later on, you're trying to talk the child into, let's tie it to your bedpost or something. You don't want this child to go around with this balloon all the time. Okay. Well, in this passage, Paul pops the balloon of Jewish pride, the sources of their pride and confidence. I think that analogy helps me to get the whole picture of what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 2. And hopefully that picture, popping the balloon of Jewish pride and presumption, will carry you through the next few weeks, because it's going to take us a few weeks to get through Romans chapter 2. Now, more specifically, what Paul does is he sweeps away two sources of Jewish pride. And I can show you this in the opening of the two sections of Romans 2. So look at verse 1 with me. And we'll look at the way that Paul addresses his... His reader here. Uh, He's got a specific reader in mind. Look at Romans 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, in this passage, Paul shifts from third person plurals, they and them, as he described in Romans 1. They and them commit all these sins, they're under all this stuff. He shifts to second person singular, you singular, and he confronts an imagined opponent. Now, Paul is using a style of writing here that's an ancient style of writing called diatribe, where he creates a sparring partner for a debate, okay? But what we need to ask ourselves in Romans 2 is what kind of person is Paul talking to uh, here? Okay, so in verse 1, he says, the questions we're asking are, who is the you? Who is the oh man? Who is you the judge? And unfortunately, there is some debate about this question. Who is Paul referring to? Who does he imagine in verse 1? 
And while some believe that Paul's confronting any person who hypocritically judges others. Okay, so people like John Stott and F.F. Bruce say he's confronting a moralist, that he moves from Gentile in Romans 1 to a hypocritical person, a moralist, regardless of ethnicity, Gentile or Jew, and then later on in the chapter he'll get to the Jews. That's what Stott and Bruce believe, but I think it's better uh, that uh, I think the answer to who he's dealing with comes out clearly in the second sweeping argument in the way he addresses this person in verse 17. So look at verse 17 with us here. Paul says, but if you, still on the yous, okay, or yins, or I guess I can't say that, uh, but if you call yourself a Jew... And rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, uh, and we'll stop there. Paul goes away from second person singulars in verses 6 through 16. You won't find you and yourself in verses 6 through 16 here. But, that, but here he calls out his imagined opponent again by referring to him as you or yourself. So in verse 17, he says, you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law. Verse 18, middle of the verse, you are instructed from the law. Verse 19, you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind. You, in chapter 2, refers primarily to an imaginary Jewish opponent who judges Gentile sinners for doing the same sins that he or she commits. Now perhaps Paul starts generally with you, O man, in verse 1, so that a Jewish reader might continue to read his scroll and not close it up and shut him down. I couldn't help but think as I walked through this passage, perhaps this is how Paul preached in his synagogue sermons uh, in the book of Acts. We read that Paul goes in the synagogues and he's preaching to Jewish people and, and he'll get a hearing, right? And Many times Jewish people believe, but, but also many times they don't, and they get upset, they get angry. Sometimes they persecute him, stone him, things like that, as the message becomes more and more clear. I'm not just talking about any man, I'm talking about you, Jewish person, who sits in judgment over the Gentiles because of their sin, but you're doing the same exact things. And so having this clear identification of the imaginary man who sits in judgment over the sinners of chapter 1, we should note that verses 1 and 17 are headers for two long arguments that Paul makes against the Jewish people in Romans. This chapter deals with two Jewish badges that were the source of of Jewish presumption and pride. Their presumption rested on two props. One, they felt that because they possessed the law of Moses, Romans 2, 1 through 16, that they would be exonerated from all forms of God's judgment. And two, they felt that because they bore the physical 
external mark of circumcision that they would be exempted from God's judgment as well, Romans 2, 17 through 29, especially when you get to verses 25 through 29. These two things they owned or possessed, they felt gave them grounds for an exemption in God's judgment. Okay, and so this is what we're going to take the next three weeks to unpack in Romans chapter 2. And so in verses 1 through 16, Paul makes a long argument about Jewish confidence in possessing the law of Moses. We actually won't get to much of that confidence today. It will actually come, Lord willing, next Sunday in verses 12 through 16. But within the first 16 verses, Paul, Paul makes three arguments about God and the way that God judges. These are found in the three paragraphs of chapter 2. And I think these would be important for anyone who thinks that he would escape God's judgment. Uh, we'll look at two of these today. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 and then 6 through 11. We'll do so quickly. Um, so if you have a handout today, the first blank uh, that you've got in your handout is that God will judge hypocritical judges. God will judge hypocritical judges. Verses 1 through 5. Okay, that's the main point. And Paul begins with an initial argument. Look at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Here Paul begins by suggesting that there's no excuse for the man or woman who judges others while committing, committing uh, the, the very same things of Romans chapter 1. The Jews might imagine that, uh, Jewish people might imagine that, uh, or this Jewish person might imagine that he is free from uh, the Gentile sins of homosexuality and idolatry, but Paul's list of sins in verses 29 through 31 condemns everyone. And the point that he's making is uh, here in chapter 2 as he, he turns to the Jew is that the, the lust in the hearts of the Jewish people, uh, this Jewish person, leads to the same sort of perverse sins that the Gentiles practice in chapter 1. I mean, Paul couldn't be any clearer at the end of verse 1 when he says, you, the judge, practice the, same, the very same things. There's a little commentary in the book of Romans. It can't be 50 pages. It's a little red book. I think it's out of print, but if you ever find it, you need to buy it. It's written by Charles Erdman. It's uh, reading through Romans. And in this little book, this little red book, he describes this verse this way. He says, a large part of the religion of some men seems to consist in their readiness to find fault with others. Say it one more time. A large part of the religion of some men seems to consist in their readiness to find fault with others. So Paul's opening argument up here about hypocritical judging, and especially going after the Jewish judge here, sit in judgment over the Gentiles, is a strong warning. It should be for us as well. It should be a strong warning for us not to boast in our own self-righteousness, nor to cast strong, condescending looks down upon other people for their sins. Men and women, this is very important for us as followers of Jesus Christ. 
Those have been cleansed only by his blood and righteousness. You see, we can be so easily blinded by our own pride and judgmental hearts. As we prepare for the Lord's table a little bit later on, might we ask ourselves questions like this. Have I issued judgments on another brother or sister in Christ here? Have I been critical about of others about their sin while forgetting my own? Would someone here have reason to call me, you, the judge? Sadly, the Jewish people are not the only ones who can be inflated with pride and presumption. One of the greatest foundations for our unity as a church, a Colonial Baptist Church, is the fundamental conviction, I am not better than you. And you say the same thing. I am every bit as much a sinner as you are. Who am I to judge you? And along these lines, we should really consider whether or not we've ever come face to face with the reality of our own sinfulness. Has your own sinfulness caused you to whirl and spin? Has it turned your world upside down like it should do for this Jewish person here? Okay. This Jewish person thinks, you know, who sinners are? Those are Gentiles. And God's wrath burns for them. That's why God created hell for the Gentiles. And Paul turns it upside down here on them. Have you ever deeply, significantly felt the weight of your own sin before? One of the greatest foundations for uh, unity in the church is the conviction that we are all sinners. It's also one of the greatest foundations for affectionate, caring evangelism. So we don't go to people who are outside of Christ and think, oh, how in the world could they? When the reality is, we all have done it. Or the potentials within each of us to do these things. May we be careful not to issue judgments over the sins of others, considering that we often commit the, the same things. And may God not look at us at Colonial Baptist Church and say, you, the judge, commit the same exact things. That leads Paul in verse 2 to state something that both he and his imaginary partner, uh, sparring partner here, the Jew, would agree with in verse 2. I think they would agree here, verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Okay, so this is like a shared idea. For a moment, there'll be agreement. Although his Jewish opponent doesn't agree with what Paul says in verse 1, he does clearly believe that God's judgment rightly comes down on every single person who practices these sorts of sins. Because people have sinned in this way, God is just, fair, and right. His judgment is in accordance with the facts. That leads Paul in verses 3 and 4 to uh, ask two powerful rhetorical questions to this imaginary man or woman in his debate. And I want to read these two questions. They're clearly marked. Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice uh, such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, or 
Do you presume upon the riches of the, of its knowledge and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Okay, so it's pretty easy to outline this passage, right? Two questions. First question is really cutting, and it gets to the math of this person, right? Some of us don't like math. But this word suppose in verse 3 is a math term that means to count, to figure, or to reckon. This man comes up with some figures that shows that somehow he'll be okay. Okay, but his calculations are wrong. I think that Paul knows that people often add up the evidence and somehow exonerate themselves before God. Does math, huh, I get, put this little part in the equation here and I get free. But the law in here, I, I, I have the law of Moses, so... I'm good. God's a person. But Paul drives this point home more strongly with this question in verse 4, the second question. He asks if this Jewish objector presumes on the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. And I love this expression, the riches of. Paul intensifies the nouns, the kindness, forbearance, and patience. It's a whole abundance of God's uh, kindness, forbearance, and patience. They're presuming on it. They're taking for granted God's abundant displays of these things to them. And men and women, the Old Testament is full of illustrations, isn't it? Of different times when the children of Israel presumed upon God's goodness, kindness, and patience. Different times when they were stuck in their sin, blinded to it. Just think of the judges era, for instance. But before and after as well. They're blinded to sin and they're they're taking for granted God's patience and forbearance. They are standing with the fool in the Psalms who says, surely he has forgotten my sin. And so God here in this passage is tolerating their sin. He's giving them some more time and the purpose is for repentance. God is restraining his wrath from annihilating the Jewish person so that he would change his mind and come back to him. Instead, however, that's not how Paul ends it in verse 5 here with the the Jewish person. Verse 5, he talks about the final condemnation of you, the judge. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard an impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here Paul vividly pictures the Jewish hypocritical judge as storing up or treasuring up for himself God's wrath on the day of final judgment. Words storing up uh, come from a Greek term that could be translated treasuring up. The, the term actually sounds like our English word thesaurus. A thesaurus is a treasury of synonyms. Okay, But here, instead of treasuring or collecting up something good, which is normally the case with this word, they are storing up for themselves God's Wrath. 
This man has failed to repent because he has a hard and impenitent heart and consequently he keeps building up more and more final wrath for himself on the day of judgment. For this, there's a, 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 a metaphor, I think, that could, could help us kind of picture what Paul's saying here. Imagine that you were uh, every day in the mail given a brick. What a great gift, right? But instead of doing something constructive with it, you would open uh, up your attic every day and just simply throw the brick up there. Every day you do the same thing. You receive a brick, you throw it in the attic. Day after day you get a brick. Day after day it goes in your attic. Eventually the ceiling begins to sag under the weight of all the bricks. It might even start to crack, but day after day just ignore it. Just keep throwing it up there. Until the ceiling gives way under the immense weight of all that you've cast up there. This is what we do when we judge others for sins while we commit the same exact things. Brick, brick, brick. We must not abuse the goodness and patience and forbearance of God. We must not store up God's wrath for a future day. God will judge us based on how we really are. And at the Lord's table this morning... Might I encourage you to ask, am I resentful toward someone here? God, have you been forbearing in my life in some way in your goodness, hoping that I'll repent? Have you been forbearing regarding my judgmental spirit? Might encourage you as well at the Lord's table to go to the one who offers forgiveness through the completed work of Jesus Christ. It covers all of our sins because of him. So the first lesson that Paul teaches is that God judges hypocritical judges. I've got about 15 minutes left. And so I want to go through verses 6 through 11 with you and make the second point that he does with this hypocritical judge Look in your Bible at verse 6. I'll read through this paragraph, and then we'll draw out its point. Verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Now as we come to these verses, we need to ask ourselves a question. What what are we supposed to do with them? It seems as if, as Paul's going along here, he says, you know what? If people do good well enough, they will get good things. And if they do evil, God will bring wrath, judgment, and fury on them. Is that appropriate? Is that right? And to understand this passage, one of the things I think you need to consider, and this is a diagram that I had before, so hopefully you can uh, find that word, you know, get your hand ready, right? Write it on there. Um, To understand this passage, it's very clear. If I give you this, I think you'll get it, and then you'll be, oh, yeah. There are three cycles that he talks about, three points he makes, 
in verses 6 through 11. And these cycles describe the destiny of two groups. Okay, so uh, first of all, what he's going to show us in verses 8 and 9, right in the center of the passage, is what happens to evil people. Okay, and to evil people, he describes what they do in verse 8, the beginning of that verse, in four ways. They are self-seeking, they do not obey truth, they obey unrighteousness, and they do evil. That's why I call them an evil person. They're doing evil. So above the line is what they do. Below the line is what they get. Right? And this first one's pretty easy, right, for us to think about theologically. What evil people get is, in the middle of verse 8 and into verse 9, they get four things. Wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. Okay? And we're going to look at these things in, uh, very quickly, but in detail as we go throughout. Okay. So there's this part in the center of the text that's telling us about what evil people get. Okay. Around it, and just around it, in verses 7 and 10, you have a description of good people. Good people. What they do and what they get. Okay, so in verse 7, at the beginning of the verse, we learn that they demonstrate patience in well-doing, They seek glory, they seek honor, but then you have to go to the end of verse 10 to see the fourth description of them and what they do. They also do good. All right, so description of good people is they do good. They're seeking after these things. What they get is found in verses 7 and 10 as well. And in verse 7, they get eternal life. And then as you go to the uh, beginning of verse 10, they also get glory, honor, and peace. All right, so you can kind of see what's going on in the passage, right? Paul's entertaining what's going to happen to good people and bad people, evil people, okay? But the whole point is framed at the beginning in verses 6 and 11. Around all of this other stuff, in the center is this point. God is impartial, or God judges every person impartially, rightly and fairly. That's what verse 6 and verse 11 show us. <coughs> God is impartial. So if you're looking for the blank, that's the one right in the center there. God is impartial. Okay? Now, Let's work through this text just briefly. Cycle 1 is verses 10, 7 and 10. If you didn't get it all, it's in your Bible. Right? It's right there. Let's just write down the Bible words right in there. All right? You can also uh, look it up on sometime online or something. Cycle 1 is God rewards the good, verse 7. And this is the hardest one. In verses 7 and 10, Paul talks about those who do good. Specifically, these people are patient and well-doing. They seek glory. They seek honor. They seek immortality. They're persistent in doing good works. They're seeking all the right things. Okay, But the question becomes, if you're really seriously interacting with this passage, is who are these good people? The passage. What is Paul imagining here? Is this a description of works salvation? 
Because as he describes it, he says, they're doing good. What do they get? Eternal life. Am I just like creating these things myself? That's what Paul wrote. Okay, so then there are different ways that you can explain this. And in your handout, there are three views, okay? There are a few ways people describe this. I'll just go briefly through the ones I don't like and then... Some people do believe that Romans 2, 6, or 11 teaches a work salvation. That Paul offers salvation through works or personal merit. To them, some people will be obedient enough to gain eternal life in heaven. These special few will be rewarded by God. And if Romans 2, 6, or 11 is all we had in our Bible about this topic, we might think that. Okay, but even in the same passage, all you have to do is keep reading to see that that's not what's going on here. You get on to the end of chapter 3, and you look at like verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. A little bit later in the section, in the middle of the verse, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. There it is. Talk about doing good. No one does good, not even one. Okay, so it's clear that this is not a work salvation. This is not some people doing good and God giving them eternal life. The rest of Scripture, I believe, also contradicts that idea. Another view is what I call the theoretical or hypothetical view of the person doing good. That's a question we're just asking. Who does good and is rewarded in this passage? So some believe that God actually promises eternal life to all those who continue in these acts. It's an actual promise. This is a valid offer, but as Paul continues to develop his thoughts in Romans 1 through 3, he demonstrates that no human being will be justified by works of the law. Romans 3 verse 20. In other words, salvation through perfect law keeping is theoretically possible, although no one will ever be able to attain it. Um, for sake of time, we won't go to the passage where Jesus is interacting with the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, where the rich young ruler says to Jesus, what should I do to inherit eternal life? What, what commandments do I need to keep? And Jesus' answer, if you remember, is keep the commandments. Which one? Jesus lists out the ten. The guy says, well, I've done all of these. And then Jesus, he knows what's in the heart of the guy, Right? He says, okay, for you to inherit eternal life, what you need to do is you need to go sell all of your possessions and give it to the poor. And the guy goes away sorrowful. Well, we explain that passage as, you know, Jesus really knows what's in the heart of the man. He knows how he's going to respond, and he knows that the law is going to point out his sin. But at the beginning, the man does ask Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? He says, keep the commandments. Okay, is that true or not? So Romans 2, and the way it's described this way, is that, you know, the offer is on the shelf. We can all see it, but no one can get that high. Theoretically, it's true. Hypothetically, it's true that if someone perfectly obeyed the law of Moses, they would be converted, but no one will ever be able to do that in fallen, sinful humanity. Although that's an excellent view, there's one other way to describe it, and that's uh, the third view is the suggestive view. And uh, I try to limit how much I do this. I, you know, I, I get all geeked up and excited about different ways to look at it. I know that. But I hope this is helpful to you. 
It's a suggestive view. Others believe that at least it's strongly implied in this text that the only type of person who will continue in these things are is a believer in Jesus Christ. In other words, only true Christians will seek after good and continue in all these things. Okay, there are different good ways to take it. I kind of maybe lean more towards that second one. It's a hypothetical, theoretical offer that no one can achieve. Regardless, the point is that God rewards those who truly persevere in good works. Okay, but the bigger point for this Jewish reader that he's confronting is in verses 8 and 9, the second cycle. The second cycle teaches that God punishes evil. Some who insist on their own righteousness, the text describes them this way, they are self-seeking, they do not obey the truth, it's been given to them, they obey unrighteousness, and they do the evil, or the wicked. People who behave in this way are subject to God's judgment in four forms, in the form of wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. Here, wrath carries the idea of swelling up. God's anger comes from a settled nature that builds or swells up. Fury speaks of God's bubbling or agitated anger. Tribulation is used of pressure that crushes things. I just saw this word is used in the expression of the crushing of the grapes of wrath of Armageddon. Crushing down, that's what tribulation is. And distress is anguish caused by Severe confinement. And some, when you put all these together, it will be utterly miserable for the wicked person. God will crush him because of his sin. That's cycle two. God judges the evil. But the main point in the passage is verses 6 and 11, what was at the heart of that diagram I gave you, and that's that God judges every person impartially. Verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. Verse 11, for God shows no partiality. One man has said it this way. He said, the ground is level before the righteous judge. Every person will be judged impartially by God. And this is an important point for Paul to emphasize to a man or a woman who thinks that he or she can sit in judgment on others while partaking in the same sort of sins described in verses 29 through 31, chapter 1. The main point here, brothers and sisters, is that no one is exempted. God will judge every single person here. Under the sound of my voice. We will all stand one day before an infinitely holy and infinitely perfect judge of the whole earth. I think it's extremely appropriate for us in this moment as we prepare for the Lord's table to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. As we prepare to celebrate And remember, the only sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could save us from the wrath of God.